0: Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas. This is one Well Pleasant, uh, good morning to you. This is Patrick Timpone. Here I am. Well, that's not me. That's Dr. Hold on, hold on a second. What? Wait, no. Well, I got it there. It's Monday morning. What do you expect? Actually, we have pre recorded the show to so hold your calls and your your emails this morning. It is a Monday morning. That would be the five or six seven eight 9th of of august 2022 we have a great week for you tomorrow the one and only santos bonacci and he is a a um i think a cosmology truther is the best way to put him uh jack and margie flynn they talk some about uh, their latest book which is all about banking and how you can navigate the banking world and hopefully, not get in trouble and possibly protect yourself. And uh, some very interesting things. It's a book all about banking. And then we have another lady coming up this week on regenerative farming, and uh, she's very interesting. So we have a lot of things to do this week. Come by and see us this morning. Uh, again, we are pre-recorded, so hold your calls and emails. We're going to talk to Dr. Uh, Robert Syvis. He's an MD. He's a PhD. I saw a video uh, with Dr. Saibis when I first started looking into this whole carnivore thing a few months ago, and I really liked his uh, what he was working with, with obesity, and uh, I think you're going to really enjoy our conversation. I know you will. His website is obesityunderstood.com. Uh, obesity Dr. Saibis, good morning. How are you, sir? Nice to have you here.
1: Good morning, Patrick. Good to be here with you.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that accent is... South African.
1: That's right. Yeah, I've been in the U.S. since 1989, but I've retained my accent quite pleasingly for me. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. uh, Yeah, no, that's, that's my background.
0: I think the only South African I've ever interviewed is 30, 40 years ago, Gary Player.
1: And, uh, oh, excellent! Yeah, Fantastic and what again? Is, yeah. is he
0: still around? I, is he still? I think. Oh,
1: very much so. He's still active. He's older, but uh, he's active. He's yeah. a philanthropist and just an all round good, good representative yeah. of our country and of the sport.
0: And he was always into uh, vitamins and you know health and stuff. And he used to do about I think five hundred push-ups or something crazy. He said to yeah, you. he's actually
1: very, very involved in regenerative health and ah, longevity and yeah, what yeah. we call senescence. So. That that's a piece of what we do, but it's um, he does it from the uh, additive side. We do it from the removal side. In other words, if you remove all the things that result in early death, then you're going to live longer by default. <laughs>
0: that's a good thing. It's just kind of get rid of get rid of uh, bad thoughts, and then you'll just live longer, right? You know, just
1: yeah. It, it, it's a slightly different approach. You know, yeah. most people try to take um, vitamin supplements and do things to live longer. We're all our genetics typically makes us live a very good long period of time. Right. But, you yeah. know, if you choose to text and drive at the same time, uh, you're making a choice that may potentially shorten your life very quickly. So, you remove texting and driving, you're probably going to live a little longer. You don't quit quit smoking, quit. Alcohol's fine, but if you quit overdoing it, um, you know, those are the things. And what we're going to talk about is sure. you get rid of carbohydrates, sure. sugar, and starch in your life. All of those things are subtractions from how long you're supposed to live. So if you remove these subtractions, you're going to live pretty long.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a good thing. Um, so, you, I mean, you specialize in obesity. You actually do obesity surgery and things like that, right?
1: Well, to a certain extent. I mean, I'm, I mean that's my background, but mm-hmm. I've evolved more to look at this from a metabolic health perspective. That's so nice. it's much broader than obesity. We're looking at diabetes. We're looking at cancer. We're looking at Alzheimer's. Ah. And there's a root cause for all of those things. Um, we tend to think of them as different endpoints. But if you work them backwards, um, they really have a single root cause. And that is the shift over the last 50 to 70 years in our diet where humans believe that they're better than God and nature in terms of nutritional provision. <laughs> um, they've said to God and nature, no, 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 no. You guys are wrong. We know better. This is the way you should eat. Don't eat real food. Eat the crap that we uh, tell you So,
0: to Dr. Saivis, is it actually possible That over the last 100 or whatever years, when we started eating this rice and pasta and cookies and cakes and crackers and sugar, that we are just wrong? I mean, we're just, that's just not, it's just not uh, 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 species specific for us.
1: Absolutely, wow. I, you know the the belief uh, that certain things are bad for us and certain things are good for us is absolutely 100% unsupported by science. And one of the greatest frauds in our modern healthcare, propagated at multiple levels, and there's, there's huge parallels, for example, with the opioid crisis in mm-hmm. terms of. The escalation of where the problems lie, but the great, one of the greatest frauds in our healthcare system right now, and I'm very comfortable talking about this, yeah. is um, the fact that cholesterol is bad for us, and everybody should be on a statin. Um, you know, if you you don't have to be a doctor to understand this. Logically, if you follow the algorithm that most doctors would have you have, um, how much how much cholesterol is there in an egg? Not sure. There's a huge amount. Yeah, there's a huge amount of cholesterol in an egg. That's why for a long time, eggs were demonized. Yeah. So, but if you think about it this way, if cholesterol was bad for us, and and we're not that far removed from other animals, if cholesterol was bad for an egg, the egg is going to become a chicken. That means all chickens should be profoundly unhealthy, and baby chickens should be dying of heart attacks left, right, and center. (laughs) Um, If sugar was so important for us, how much sugar do you think there is in an egg? There's zero, it's less than one gram. So if sugar was important for life, surely chickens wouldn't be possible. But oh no, our healthcare providers have said, "Mm -mm, God, you're wrong. Cholesterol is bad for you. You've got to lower your cholesterol. Cholesterol is in our bodies for a very powerful positive purpose. And cholesterol is a healing and a reparative molecule. It responds to injury. It doesn't cause injury. So, if you're damaging your blood vessels with elevated sugar and with nicotine, the mm-hmm. cholesterol comes mm-hmm. as a patch to try to heal that. But when we look at those blood vessels, all we see are these band-aids, and we say, "Aha! The band-aid is killing us."
0: So that's what and happened. At the, at the, that's that's what 15. happened in the Framingham study. They found cholesterol Absolutely. in the arteries, and they blamed that because they were at the scene of the crime, but they were not the perpetrator.
1: Correct. The firemen who are putting out <laughs> the fire. Are not, <laughs> <the ourselves. laughs> are not the And yet we've, uh, you know, we've believed in that. And then pharma took that over. They've got a multi, I think last year it was $3.2 trillion yes. was spent on statin medications worldwide. Oh, no, no, wait, so, wait, wait. Oh, $3 trillion worldwide, Dr. Cyber $3.2 trillion was spent on one medication class called Statin. Is
0: that number like, correct? It's it that
1: much? Wow, that much, that much. So if you look at that, that amount of money, wow! the the amount of lobbying, the amount of of invasive uh, advertising is enormous. Wow. And, you know, there's just we as individuals need to ask our providers, why is this important? So it's just a simple thing. I mean, you asked me, you know, is there truth in the fact that the modern advice is correct? No, the data and the science does not support it. But pharma does because profit does. So really, healthcare has become a business, not a science. And MBAs are less likely to treat you than your physicians. But we've been
0: have A brother of mine who I talk about this, who I love dearly, and I talk to him about the statins that he's on, and he goes to his cardiologist, a true story, and his cardiologist says... I'm sorry, I won't treat you if you're not if you get off the statins.
1: And you know what? That's that cardiologist's right. It is also the right to your brother to say, thank you very much. I am not going to have you as my treating physician. Right. And the majority of my patients, and this is so sad about healthcare, uh, it is so sad that the majority of my patients have had disputes or have fired their own healthcare providers because of the inadequacy and the lack of support and that kind of paternalistic attitude. You know, Patrick, what I tell my patients is this, look, I can give you all the science behind the falsehood and the fraud of statins. And I can tell you that it's probably not in your best interest to use a statin, but if you want to use it, if you believe you should, I don't care. I mean, I care about you, but I don't, I'm not going to tell you I'm going to fire you if you take a statin. See, here's the thing, Patrick, the one thing all human beings have in common, all of us, we're all going to die. How we get there is our choice. Along the way, we gather knowledge so that we can make better choices and based on that knowledge, we then decide for ourselves what pathway, what trajectory our lives take. So, you know, I'll tell you an opposing argument to that cardiologist about the statins. You can then weigh up their advice versus our advice and then you can decide for yourself which advice to follow. Yes, sir. I'm not here to tell you you must do something, you have to do something. I'm here to provide information from our background, and you can then decide for yourself what advice you want to follow.
0: We all have free will, and that's And we all want to do what we want, right? That's the deal. (laughs) You know,
1: so I think that is what the Internet has helped us with tremendously, is that we are able to corroborate and identify knowledge. Now, if you go down the rabbit hole of a false theory, so be it. But but if you are smart about this, you can corroborate information and then perhaps talk to a couple of experts a physician or whatever it may be and get their truth and then make your decision for yourself. Because I'll tell you what, that cardiologist is not going to go over to your brother's place and open his mouth and put the statin in his mouth. Yeah. Not going to happen. Yeah. So that's a decision we have to make as individuals.
0: So just a short story of, for all the people that may be listening that know people on statins or are on them, millions of Americans just in in this country, what are they doing? What does the science say that they do to the body that is just not good, undesirable. Right.
1: Well, there is a very powerful pathway in the body to absorb uh, cholesterol and to produce cholesterol in the liver. That isn't there by mistake. That is not a system that's been put into our physiology as a death wish. The, The Biology doesn't work that way. So that's not kind of that death wish. We're not lemming. So it is there for a positive purpose. And what statins do is they block one of the uh, enzymes that converts lipids, fat, to uh, and sometimes sugar to cholesterol. Cholesterol is inherent in every cellular hmm. uh, membrane. In other words, every lipid membrane in every cell has to have cholesterol in it. In fact, one-fifth of all the cholesterol in the body, 20%, is in the human brain. And without cholesterol, the human brain suffers very dire consequences. Um, cholesterol is also, fat and cholesterol is also the final healing process of injury to blood vessels. So if you injure your blood vessels, and we're doing that all the time, um, form a little clot and then the clot attracts cells. And then as the clot heals, it gets replaced by a little layer of fat. Now, if you're repetitively injuring your blood vessels, you're going to find more, uh, deposits of fat. And people that die of heart attacks and strokes, are typically people that come from one of two backgrounds they either have a background history of smoking or they have a background history of chronic excessive sugar and starch consumption both of which are very powerful injurious agents to the blood vessels so in the 1950s and 60s when people were dying of of heart attacks and strokes and they did autopsies and they found their blood vessels were clogged with blood with uh, fat they said aha Hmm. it must be the fat in our diet that's killing us um, what they didn't understand is there was about fifty or sixty percent of people that were dying not of strokes and heart attacks, and they did autopsies on those people. Their blood vessels were pristine. They were all eating the same amount of fat, but one group was a smoking group, and one group didn't smoke. And the smokers had the clogged blood vessels. So eighty years, or, 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 or sorry, sixty years later, we know that that nicotine damages those blood vessels. Same thing with sugar It does the same effect. Damages so the blood without, vessels. Wow. Correct. So our type 2 diabetics, our patients who are insulin resistant, which are the majority of Americans, are accumulating plaque in their blood vessels. I'll give you a horrible statistic. You started out in Vietnam when autopsies were done on the Vietnam vets. The average age of death in the Vietnam War was 19 years of age. And already those people, those young kids had demonstrable plaque in their blood vessels. Now, there was a lot of smoking as well as a lot of the MREs sure. and that kind sort of thing sure. were high in sugar. Yeah. So this starts at a very, very early age and catches us in our 50s and 60s. But the lipid is not to blame. It is responding to an injury. It isn't causing the injury.
0: Yeah, the lipid being the, the, the cholesterol. The fat. So yeah. uh, is, it, uh, is it the nicotine in the cigarettes or all of the chemicals in the cigarettes, or both?
1: It's it's a combination it's a combination of both. Mm-hmm. But I think you know the the tobacco lobby is heavily supporting uh, vaping as a as a because it's a it's a profit based thing. they say, oh no no we know cigarettes are not good for us, but vaping is wonderful. Now the problem is here in Florida, irrespective of the disease that it causes physiologically, from a mental health perspective, I've got a lot of educators who well, are patients of mine. Um, approximately fifty to sixty percent of floridian high schoolers mm-hmm. vape on a regular basis and that is the cdc has statistics around 35 to 50, 35 to 40 percent of high school kids vape na- nationwide but that's from 2018. post COVID, the majority of high school kids are vaping on a regular basis so forget about diet forget about nutrition that is a huge huge mental health problem because the only reason the only purpose of nicotine and Juul is for instant gratification, right. instant emotional resolution. Oh. Right. That's what it does. There's no other value to smoking hmm. or, or using using a vape. And Juul has about five times the amount of nicotine per puff than the average cigarette. So, so we're rapidly getting our kids hooked on these on these drugs. And a little while ago, the government was going to ban Juul. And then suddenly they said the day before they were supposed to ban it, they said, oh, no, 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 let's wait. Let's pump the... Br- because... Big Tobacco, the big lobbyist with all that money said the same thing. Exactly the same is happening with cholesterol. When you have a $3.2 trillion industry, hmm. and those are 2019 statistics, wow. or 20, uh, 2020 statistics, when you're making that money or that much money off of medication, think about the, about the opioid lobby. Think about how much money the pharmaceutical industry made selling people opioids. And, and funding Congress and funding um, the senators to not lobby against the pharmaceutical company, be it statins, be it, uh, be it opioids. That's what we're up against. So what we as individuals have to do is to look not at the best advice from the tobacco lobby or from the pharmaceutical companies, but we have to look at, at the science behind this and investigate this ourselves. At the same time, Patrick, this mm-hmm. is important. If your doctor believes you should be on a statin, it may be because they're concerned about cardiovascular disease. So you've got to look then and say, okay, why do I have cardiovascular disease? And what can I possibly uh, do to mitigate that if a statin is going to magically fix the problem?
0: Exactly. That's a good question, too, for those who believe they have some kind of uh, um, damage going on in their veins and taking statins. Can they, by changing their lifestyle, heal that?
1: Absolutely. Yep. You caused it. You can make it get better. And we've again got to look at the cause. If you're a smoker, Gotta make quit. the decision yeah. to quit smoking. I mean, that's that's an easy one. Um, and, oh, you make the decision, I'm going to continue to smoke, but then I'll accept the consequences of my heart attack, my stroke, my other disease, because it's that whatever it is is going to be inevitable. Um, the same is true if you look, and this is the interesting thing. You look at the majority of people, non-smokers, who have cardiovascular disease, Anywhere from 60 to 80 percent of their total caloric consumption is some form of sugar or starch. Wow. Irrespective of whether you believe that sugar or starch is healthy for you or unhealthy for you. And that we'll get to that in a few seconds. Sure. So and, and sugar and starch is not necessary as a consumable for human survival. Your liver is very good at producing sugar, primarily from protein, as well as a little bit from one of the one of the moieties in fat called glycerol. So We don't need to consume sugar uh, certainly not in large amounts to be healthy as humans. So if 80% of your diet is a substance you don't need and a substance that directly correlates with vascular injury, then you've set yourself up for that cardiovascular risk. And especially if you are not a high producer of a hormone called insulin. Now you're developing insulin resistance. You're developing type two diabetes. And so many people in my practice are unaware. Of the fact they have type 2 diabetes because they look like you and me and the doctor doesn't think that a healthy normal weight person while i'm a little bit overweight is going to be Mm. but i've been 300 pounds by the way i've lost 102 pounds as i'm sitting here but that we have a risk for diabetes so they don't test for it Mm. i just did a study on a group of harvard medical students 22 to 28 years of age and we found, and they are the healthiest of the healthy group of people. And yet we found profound health issues in their biochemistry because of their diet. But no doctor would ever even have tested them because it's inconceivable that someone who's an Olympic skier or someone who plays on a mm. national soccer team right. and is that fit and that good looking could possibly have health issues. Wow, wow. Uh,
0: Dr. Uh, Robert, Saibis is with us A Carb Addiction. Uh, I think I've actually got the... Well, you can use this, uh, this website to find out more about him, obesityunderstood.com, and Carb Addiction, he's got on a social media thing. So let's go to some of the basics. I, I, I still don't really understand, as many times have I heard it, this insulin resistance. So let's say that I'm eating a bunch of rice and cookies and cakes and crackers or pasta and stuff. What goes on in my body that I don't know is going on that I, I, I would stop if I knew?
1: Okay. So uh, let's, let's go down this pathway. And I think this is very, before we even go there, this, there's a very, very important caveat to that because okay. I'm arguing against a big lobby of people that say, well, these are healthy foods. Yes, absolutely they are. A uh, glass of red wine every now and then, absolutely healthy. Mm-hmm. But if you're drinking two bottles of red wine every day, problem. So the first most important thing about carbohydrates is the dose matters. Ah. There are plenty of people all over the world uh, who subsist on small amounts of carbohydrates twice a day, but they're, they're fighting off starvation. Those, if you eat rice twice a day in rural China, if you're eating a little bit of grain twice a day or once a day in Somalia where there's famine, uh, those things keep us alive. They don't cause harm. So the dose matters, just like with red wine, a glass of red wine, quite healthy, two bottles of red wine every day, not so much. Uh-huh. So the dose matters and your relationship with sugar and starch does matter. And what's happened in America as we have forsaken and demonized fat, when you remove fat from food, food tastes like crap. So what is the productive uh, or the, the in- industry of, health, of food done is it's produced a huge amount of processed carbohydrates in our diet. So the majority of people are eating a dominant amount of processed carbohydrates, as you've said. Your pastas, your breads, your cookies, your cakes, your um, and the processed carbohydrates in particular are we're overdosing on them. The average American currently eats in one day the amount of carbohydrates fifty years ago we used to eat in over a month. Really? So Whoa. it's a massive increase. Whoa. A massive increase. That's crazy. And Remember this, Patrick, the other piece that's important to understand. Well, you tell me what's healthier for you, an apple or a donut? I have an apple. Right. Everybody, oh, an apple's healthy. But here's the problem. If you're obese or diabetic, the apple has twice as much sugar as the donut, and it's exactly the same sugar. It's glucose and fructose. It's the identical molecule that enters your bloodstream. So apples are very healthy for healthy, skinny people. But if you're diabetic and you watch your blood sugar, it goes through the roof for four or five hours when you eat an apple. So that's where the dose Same matters. Thing the apple, Same thing for correct.
0: the donut. Same thing for the donut. And an
1: apple, you know, oh. when you and I were young, an apple was a little sour than this bit. Now yeah. it's this massive thing that lasts forever and it's full of sugar. Plus, apples used to be seasonal. Yeah. Now, 24-7, you can go down to the store and buy them. So hmm. therein lies part of the challenge is how our world has evolved to give us ready access to those foods. So in the US, we've solved the hunger crisis to a certain extent by surrogating f- with a group of industrially manufactured carbohydrates. So that's, that's part of the problem is that dose has become that issue. And then a lot of people have shifted away from primarily eating for the nutritional value of food toward more and more eating and using um, sugar as a drug as an instant gratification drug because it has as powerful an endorphin effect as nicotine as alcohol as a small dose of cocaine so we are using sugar and starch and a process of snacking for its mental health value rather than for its nutritional value i think as it says on 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 my mug over here A snack is always an emotional event (laughs) Um, and and we surround ourselves. It really is,
0: isn't it? When you think about (laughs) it, it it really
1: is. Yeah, it really is. I mean, if you think about it, if you smoke a cigar once a month, fantastic. But if you're puffing on cigarettes 20 times a day, that's a problem. If you have a couple of chocolates every now and then, fine. But if you've got a handful of M&Ms on your desk and you are snacking on them the whole day, that's problematic. Mm -hmm. So we've got to look at the relationship. Don't demonize carbohydrates look at our relationship with them. Now, you asked me about what happens when we eat them. Yeah. So, and and this is very important. So as sugar and starch, and, and whether you eat the apple or the donut, your intestine has enzymes in it that break that sugar into primary molecules, glucose, fructose, and galactose. So there are three primary sugars. The most common ones that we eat is a combination of glucose and fructose. Fructose being the most harmful one and the most common one in manufactured foods. Mm. And as those enter our stomach, they release a hormone that triggers the release of insulin. Most people have heard of insulin. Yeah. And okay. as the sugar gets into our bloodstream, insulin's job is to shove that sugar into our cells where it can be used for energy. In the liver, that energy is stored as glycogen and sometimes converted to fat. That's where our fat comes from. Obesity, fat, body fat does not come from excessive protein or excessive fat. It comes exclusively from excessive sugar. Okay, let's okay. let's okay. Re- let's slow
0: volume. that down a second and repeat yes. that because the repeat old that. idea, I remember in the '90s and we were all there, this low-fat thing, and it was just crazy. And to this day, you still have a hard time getting anything but low-fat uh, uh, yogurt, right? I mean, the whole shelf is everything is low-fat. So, so the sugar okay, goes.
1: Let me, let me make a dramatic statement. Yeah. It is impossible to get fat from eating protein and fat. Impossible. Impossible. And the reason for that <laughs> is because the human body won't allow you to do that. It won't allow its It is. To it won't allow you to do that. There's too many hormonal checks and balances in that. I'll give you another example yeah. that is easier to understand. How much water, if you're really thirsty, how much water can you drink at one time?
0: Mm, 16, 32 ounces. No, no.
1: You have no idea. Yeah. You have no idea. And, and because you don't need to have an idea, you're thirsty, you start to drink, at some point, it could be 16 ounces, it could be 20 ounces, it could be 30 ounces, a signal goes from your brain to your belly that says, Patrick, you, thirsty you've thirsty. you had
0: enough, stop. Yeah, you've had enough.
1: Yeah. And you automatically stop, and it's very difficult to <clears throat> overdrink water at one time. Right. If I give you a case of beer, and I, I'm not going to ask you, I, I've done this experiment purely for scientific purposes, <laughs> um, I can drink one or two or three bottles of water. I can flatten a whole case of beer of course
0: we i'm not an
1: alcoholic yeah. but by volume the beer is much much greater and the reason for that is because the alcohol gives me a buzz the more i drink the more buzzed i get the more i can so i'm overriding this the thirst quenching signals from the beer ah. the water doesn't give me the buzz doesn't mm. make sense mm. so water consumption is very tightly controlled Alcohol isn't. at the same time when it comes to protein in fact let me ask you this question Uh, I assume you're in Texas. I assume you're not averse to a little bit of steak. I eat
0: steak every day.
1: (laughs) Right. So let's ask you, you're super hungry, and I put an 80-ounce steak in front of you. The cow sits down. How much steak can you eat at one time?
0: Usually six, maybe seven ounces, eight ounces.
1: Patrick, you have no idea. You have no idea. So what you do is you start eating steak. There's an 80-ounce steak in front of me. And you quit. At some point, oh, my God, I'm stuffed. Signals have gone from your belly to your brain that says, dude, you're done. You're done. Two minutes later, you're not sitting in front of the TV eating more steak. No. But you are sitting there with a bag of chips or a bowl of ice. You're stuffed. You're full. You can't eat more steak. Your body won't let you. But you can eat a bag of chips. You can eat a bowl of ice cream. You can eat some fruit. Because sugar is a drug that has no stopping point. Like beer or like alcohol, the more you eat, the wow. more buzz you so get. So if
0: you're full and then you... And you're going to go to a show and you all of a sudden, you go out to eat, get a steak, and then you go to the movies and then you can eat popcorn because, um, be-
1: because there's no stopping point and you're doing it for your brain, not for, for your, your body, your brain. You're, yeah. doing it for a buzz. you're getting high. So <laughs> I, I want, you know, and, and it's so important that we look at this from the substance abuse perspective yes, yeah. and from the non-biologic perspective. And, you know, I, I've got plenty of patients. I, myself, and my, my baby is two years old. We're all carnivores. And we believe we eat a ton of meat. But the reality is I've lost 102 pounds being a carnivore. And I look at my carnivore population and they are losing weight like crazy despite the fact that they eat massive amounts of meat, at least by their their mindset. So Mm -hmm. calories, um, it is false, it is a fraud to talk about calories in terms of weight loss and weight gain because the human body doesn't work that way. Because if the calories come from protein or fat, they get utilized very differently to sugar. So you, speaking in terms of calories immediately negates any positivity of any diet. But all diets are based on caloric reduction. That's why they fail.
0: I, I think it's fascinating that I, I'd never heard before in all these years that pathway between carbs and fruit and sh- any sugar that goes to the liver, which then makes the fat, which is what causes obesity.
1: Correct. Exactly wow. right. Wow. So, so uh, you know, because what the traffic then is from liver to fat cells. If you eat fat, if you eat a big your ribeye steak that you eat every mm. day, mm. that fat bypasses the liver, goes straight to the fat cells. And then between meals, you use that. That fat is trafficking from fat cells to liver, okay, when your insulin levels are low. So you're using the fat that you ate. When your insulin is high and you need insulin to shove the sugar into your blood uh, into your cells, your traffic is now liver to fat cells and insulin blocks the release of that fat from the fat cells. Wow. So you're hungry all the time and you replenish so you add into your fat cells all the time. And you know, one of the things about a carnivore diet or a so called ketogenic diet where you're not eating sugar is you stop snacking. You're not eating that often because your body doesn't need that perpetual replenishment
0: yeah
1: and um you know if you're smoking every day you're you're, as soon as your nicotine levels drop down you need to smoke some more same thing when you're eating a lot of sugar as soon as your blood sugar levels come down you need to replenish them your if your blood sugar levels are baseline and you're living in ketosis on ketones and you're living on fat uh you don't feel hungry so you may eat once or twice a day
0: i've been testing my blood sugar in the morning since i get on a carnivore diet of what, I don't know, two and a half months, and it's 40 and 50 and 60 some mornings.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's it's low, and yet you don't feel terrible. Most no. diabetics. If but but when I was eating carbs,
0: it, when I was eating carbs, if my blood sugar went to 60, I felt terrible. I needed, Correct, exactly I needed right. to eat. I felt like I was going to die if I didn't eat. Isn't that interesting?
1: And, well, Patrick, the reason for that is because… Um, instead of using sugar as your exclusive fuel source yeah and then when your sugar levels drop low you feel terrible yeah. particularly your brain yeah you're now yeah. using something called ketones which is the healthiest of the energy sources and your brain is very adept at, at you in fact your brain prefers ketones hmm. uh, it uses a little bit of sugar but it prefers ketones so if you're in ketosis it doesn't matter that your blood sugar drops a little bit low you feel fine you don't feel it. and that is your body's normal regulation so let's get back to insulin so when you eat that sugar and starch right. insulin shoves that sugar into your cells but sugar at high levels is toxic in any space you find it so high levels of sugar is toxic to your intestine it's toxic to your liver we call that fatty liver a fatty liver is not the fact that you've eaten that made your liver fat And most Americans have fatty liver at various times. It is the conversion of sugar to fat in the liver that gives you that harmful fatty liver. So insulin causes that. And when your sugar levels increase and are perpetually increased inside of your cells, it damages your cells. So the way the cells respond is they lock the front door and throw away the key. (laughs) Uh, In other words, they block the receptor for insulin. So what happens is insulin has to lock onto this receptor that opens the door and allows sugar to get into the cells. And if the cells block that receptor, insulin locks onto it, but the door doesn't open. So the cells themselves have a lower amount of sugar. It protects the cells, but now the sugar builds up in your bloodstream. So genetically, some human beings can produce huge amounts of insulin. So the pancreas says, where you you produce insulin, the pancreas says to the cells, no, 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 you lock the front door, guess what? I'm gonna throw more insulin (laughs) at you. I'm gonna throw the battering ram at you and break that door down So you can shove more sugar into the cells. Those people who are high insulin producers can turn sugar into fat very readily. Their blood sugar isn't very high, but they become enormous. They're so-called obesogenic because they can produce a lot of insulin. So if you see a 400, 500-pound person walking around, they're typically a very high insulin producer. They most often don't have diabetes. On the other hand, if genetically you can't produce a lot of sugar, if... You become insulin resistant if that cell locks the front door. Now, you, oh, I don't have enough insulin. So what happens is the sugar builds up in your blood vessels, and elevated blood sugar over time damages the cells in your blood vessels. We call that diabetes. The red blood cells get damaged, and and we measure that as something called hemoglobin A1C, which is sugar permanently attaching to the red blood cells, and at a certain measurement, now you have type 2 diabetes. Those patients may not be enormous, they may be overweight, but now you've got this elevated blood sugar. So the same problem, chronic excessive carbohydrate consumption, but two very different outcomes. You've got diabetes on one hand, you've got obesity on the other hand. And along with that, you've got your cancers, you've got your autoimmune disease, you've got your polycystic ovarian syndrome, you've got Alzheimer's. All of those diseases are consequences of elevated carbohydrates in our, in our diet. Wow. So... You cannot have type 2 diabetes if you don't eat sugar. Hmm.
0: So um, uh, so a lot of the Alzheimer's and the, the things going on with the, some of the elderly population, it's probably a lack of fat and too much sugar? Could be. Exactly right. So
1: what happens, and I've just got on my YouTube channel, Carb Addiction Doc, I'm doing Uh an interview with one of the world's top researchers in exactly that. Um, And I'll give you an astounding statistic here, um, Patrick. His name is Stephen Cunane. Professor Stephen Cunane, he's in in, uh, Quebec in Canada, Mm -hmm. does phenomenal research in Alzheimer's, in brain development on Alzheimer's. So he did a study and he was looking for people. This study happened to be in women with mild cognitive impairment. And mild cognitive impairment over time becomes Alzheimer's. Okay, just like insulin resistance over time becomes diabetes, mild cognitive impairment slowly becomes Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And um, he looked at a group of women who all, he tested them and they all tested positive for mild cognitive impairment. And they all also had polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is from high levels of insulin and high levels of sugar. and by getting them on a low carbohydrate, high fat diet, and he added something called MCT oil, which is a particular type of fat to their diet yeah. over six months, yeah. he could prove that in these women, he was able to reverse that mild cognitive impairment. Wow. So he was able, he was able to repair their brains, because he, he, he does studies. He does something called a PET scan on the brains and can, can show the damage that's happening in the brain and correlate that with cognitive impairment. Does it make sense? Yeah.
0: Wow. Now okay. MCT so that's he was
1: able to but, but let me let me give yeah, you the, the astounding statistic, Patrick. Okay. What do you think the average age of these women were who had mild cognitive impairment, in other words, brain damage reversible, but brain damage from too high a sugar and too low a fat in their diet. What is their age?
0: It's probably lower than one would suspect, forty or fifty. Twenty
1: three. Whoa. Twenty three? And this is published data. You can look it up. Stephen Cunane just published PCOS paper. You'll, the average age of these women with cognitive impairment was 23 years of age. So you're already <laughs> seeing measurable wow. Alzheimer's wow. precursor at that age. That, now, the brain is phenomenal. It's got a huge capacity. So we really start to see the obvious fallout in our 50s and 60s, but it starts in the teenagers and in early, it's measurable in our early 20s. And
0: this cognitive impairment is due to actually damaged cells from the sugar, the brain cells.
1: Correct. It's brain cell. So when a brain cell uses sugar to repair itself, our brain, all of our cells in our body are continuously getting damaged. They're continuously being repaired. It's a very fluid system. Mm -hmm. And if you're, think of the three little pegs. If you build your house of straw and wood, it's not so good. The house doesn't withstand the right. wolf blowing it down. If you build your house of bricks, it's going to withstand the wolf blowing it down or the fox or whatever the story is. So sugar, when you use sugar to repair your brain and sugar can be turned to certain types of fat, that's like repairing the brain with straw and wood. Hmm. It doesn't work so good. Hmm. If you use fat, especially ketones, that's like the building blocks, the bricks that the brain needs and you create a healthy brain cell. That's simple.
0: Very interesting. Uh, you mentioned MCT oil. Now that is, isn't that, from, isn't that from coconut or so? And aren't we, aren't we better off with an animal fat?
1: Right. So coconut oil is one of the MCT oil. Uh, uh, sorry, it's coconut oil. In fact, his study was done with MCT. Uh. But if you're out there as a regular person, a little bit of coconut oil is a very, very healthy thing to have. Is it? The, the three vegetable oils that, that, or, or fruit oils that we use. Um, because they are monounsaturated or fully saturated fat, the ones that have been demonized over the last 50 years, the three healthiest non-animal fat oils, coconut oil, olive oil, avocado oil. Okay, yeah. Okay, the manufactured ones, the ones that came from being used as engine lubricants in the second world war that we now use in our food, the Criscos and the uh, peanut oils and the cottonseed oil, Canola oil. Those are the most harmful ones, canolas. Those are the most harmful oils. Um, because they are high in what we call polyunsaturated fatty acids or six omega fatty acids. Um, and in high amounts, those things are devastating to our health.
0: What do they do in the body, in the, in the, in the genre of a brain and, and uh, sugar and, and, and all that, the poofers? What, what's going on when we eat those?
1: So, again, this is an interesting concept yeah. because there are two types of fats. There's, if we look at these two, it's not in isolation. We've got three omega fatty acids, which are anti-inflammatory and I'm simplifying this. They're anti-inflammatory, and the six omegas are pro-inflammatory. So let's say you're in a building, and um, you've got a fire alarm that says, hey, there's a potential fire, and then you've got sprinklers that put the fire out responding to that alarm, okay? You need both. If you don't have the alarm, the sprinklers don't know that they should go off. Hmm. If the alarm is ringing, but there's no sprinkler, it doesn't matter because the fire is there. So Three and six omega fatty acids work in exactly the same way. They support each other. The six omega fatty acids send an alert to your immune system that there's inflammation. And the three omegas put out the fire. They help to dumb down the inflammation. But you need a signal to say, hey, there's inflammation. Then you need a signal to put it down. So the ideal ratio of three to sixes should be about one to one to one to three. The average American who's consuming a huge amount of those seed oils with a high polyunsaturated fatty acids, the ratio is typically 1 to 15 to 1 to 30. So you've got this massive pro-inflammatory response with no fire extinguisher. And in the brain, the healthiest fire extinguisher are the three omega fatty acids, which is fish oil or DHA. That's why there's this big push to use fish oil, to eat fish, uh, seafood and to use fish oil especially if you have a family history of alzheimer's i have a strong family history of alzheimer's so i really focus both my son myself and my two-year-old son uh we get a bit of fish oil every day to promote that dha to wow. increase that ratio There's
0: a lot of people out there that are demonized fish oil say they're just too heavy uh, omega-3s and we don't need them all but you disagree with that
1: huh i well i, I don't disagree okay the research, the data does. Okay. So Stephen Cunanigan again and other researchers as well have done a lot of studies. And in fact, I made a mistake a while ago. I thought, okay, fish oil. Let me take fish oil. And I, you know, like anybody, I got the cheapest one out there, but it only had forty milligrams of DHA in. Stephen has shown quite quite clearly that you need between uh, five hundred to five hundred. If you eat a lot of fish, at least a thousand milligrams of DHA every day because your body can't make it. It's a conditionally essential fatty acid. It cannot be made in high enough levels by your body. Body makes a little bit, but not enough. Mm. So taking that additional fish oil, especially if you're at risk for cardiovascular or for brain, for for Alzheimer's, that's important. The other place, uh, Patrick, where it's crucially important, and I know I'm going to step on some landmines here. I'm totally happy. Come (laughs) at me. If you look at the incidence of autism and autism spectrum disorders, which is about uh, pediatric brain development, That The statistics there have gone from 1 in 15,000 kids in 1970 had a diagnosis of autism to in 2020, it was 1 in 48. Yeah, wow. Okay, massive increase. And the primary reason for that is because those developing brains need massive amounts of DHA and fish oil as a precursor to develop. Really? And they need that fat. 65% of the human brain is fat. And again, it's a building block problem. If you don't have adequate fat for the brain, it's going to use glucose to make that fat. But that's like putting diesel in your engine as a lubricant. It doesn't work so good. They're both fossil fuels, but one is an oil made for the engine. The other is something to burn as fuel. If you use them opposite to each other in the brain, the brain doesn't develop as well. But
0: on the kids, could you not give them meat and butter and eggs and cheese and and you you'll accomplish the same thing? Than the fish but oils?
1: Patrick, that is so bad," says the FDA. Well, says yeah, dietary Absolutely. Okay. The reason why my son is a ninety-five percent carnivore, and he gets his whole milk because milk has a lot of fat in yeah, it. Sir. He gets his fish oil. He eats his meat, is because of that. Hmm. Is particularly for his brain development. But I'll give you another thing for talking about kids. Is almost everybody in America, all the kids now in America, at some point are going to the orthodontist for braces. Yes. Because our teeth will skew. None of the first world nations had bad dentition; they all had beautiful straight teeth. Whether you were in Japan or, Mon- or the, the the Mongols, whether they were Aborigines, the Maasai, because they ate meat at a very young age. My son, the very first thing he ate at four months of age was a chunk of ribeye steak, <laughs> which he chewed and he gummed. He teeth liked that. that teeth yeah. But he has a well-developed jaw, strong muscles, great dentition. All his teeth were out by 10, 10 months of age, hmm. uh, and his teeth are very straight with little gaps so they can grow yeah. because he's chewing his food. You give babies Gerber slop, which they just suck down, they're not chewing, they're not using their face. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, not, this is not rocket science.
0: That's amazing. Are you familiar with a term called lipofuscin?
1: Yes, oh, yes, absolutely.
0: What is that?
1: So uh, you tell me what you think, what what you think. It's kind of uh, maybe
0: a fatty liver or uh, 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 is it, uh, yeah, fatty liver kind of thing.
1: Um, Right. hmm? So this is, remember earlier on, I I talked about uh, people looking for a solution to, I'll give you a background. People looked for a solution in the 1950s and 60s to stroke and heart attacks, but they'd already absolved smoking as being the cause. So it couldn't be smoking. What else can it be? Well, in the modern era, we've absolved sugar as a cause for these diseases. So now we're looking for other um, uh, for other causes. Uh-huh. And we blame fat in our diet. We blame lipofuscin. We blame polyunsaturated fatty acids. Lipofuscin is a molecule that is a natural, normal molecule. But in excess, it is associated associated with fatty liver disease uh, and inflammatory oh. fatty liver disease. But it is not causal to it. In other words, it's a consequence of carbohydrate consumption, it is not produced and causes it. But if you if you look at clogged blood vessels with with um, uh, with fat, you may assume that it's the fat in our diet that clogs the blood vessels. The same thing. You look at high lipofuscin levels and other levels in people with uh, um, AST, ALT, AST, uh, uh, um, alkaline phosphatase elevated levels. You say, "Aha, that's causing the fatty liver disease." It isn't. It is a byproduct of a dysfunctional liver.
0: Um, is that also uh, tied in with a thing called yellow fat disease, lipofuscin?
1: That, exactly the same thing. Same, so so uh, same. you've got brown fat and yellow fat. Yeah. Brown yeah. fat is the healthy fat that comes from the storage of fat. And all babies are born with a lot of brown fat and they're in ketosis. Yellow fat is the fat that gets produced when you convert sugar to fat. And the fat droplets are a little bit different. I see. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, one is a storage depot. The other one is a biologically necessary fat. So brown fat gets produced when you eat fat. Um, yellow fat gets produced when you convert sugar to fat. Uh-huh. They're very, very different.
0: Very different. We, have a, we have a great, yes, sir, uh, a great regenerative farmer, pig farmer in the farmer's market here. And he does all totally uh, vegetables and no grains and stuff like that. And he says that the fat on his pigs is so impressive that when he gives them to a chef, from English, you know, from French and stuff, they look at it, that's the pig I want because that's the color fat I want. Isn't that interesting? Exa-
1: exactly interesting. right, yeah. a- absolutely right. And you know, so you, you talked about lipofuscin a little bit ago, lipofuscin yes, is a, uh, it's a molecule that gets produced along with that yellow fat. But it isn't, and there's, now you see a lot of lipofuscin in people with liver disease uh, or with people with massive yellow fat and you blame that for the disease. It isn't, it's a byproduct of production. So uh, it is produced and accumulates in these cells and may be toxic to those cells, but it doesn't didn't cause the damage. It's a consequence of the it's damage. It's a consequence. And it can be seen under the microscope. So when you look at fat and you see this under the microscope, aha, that must be the problem.
0: I see. Dr. Robert Sivas is with us, Patrick Timpone, com. We're going to do a little break. His uh, website is called obesityunderstood.com. You can also find him on uh uh, social media thing uh, carb addiction he does that to stay um, connected with his people Dr. Sivas, stay right there we're going to do a break and then I'm going to really dig into how is it possible that we could really get everything we need from meat I mean is, okay so we're going to do that it'll be fun uh, stick around we pre-recorded this show so hold your calls and emails hope you're enjoying it uh, Santos Bonacci will be here tomorrow Tuesday and if you'd like to go into a sauna and uh Have some fun. Listen, previously with cardiologist Dr. Joel Kahn, 35 years experience in cardiology.
2: On your commercial break, you hit a hot button because I'm a giant fan of infrared sauna and the cardiac benefits.
0: Tell us about uh, why you like these saunas for the heart. What does it do?
2: In Japan, it's a traditional therapy of heart disease to even sick heart patients to sit for 15 or 20 minutes in an infrared sauna, then lie down and rest and hydrate for about half an hour. They call it WAON, W-A-O-N, it means soothing heat. And they've done research studies, like 30 of them, in humans. Anti-ages your arteries and improves the strength of your heart, and it may actually prolong survival in sick heart patients. Anybody can just, again, go to the Internet, read about infrared sauna heart disease, or put my name there because I've written many articles about it. Now there's data coming out of Sweden and Finland because they've published some amazing data that number of times a week you're in a sauna, number of minutes each time, you can just track out how long you're gonna live. So very powerful therapy by being in, my favorite is an infrared sauna.
0: Well, I don't know about, yeah, I, I, thank you, Patrick. A The uh, reason I turned that off is because we have an everyday really great sale with this puppy, and it is the Relax Far Infrared Sauna. It is made in uh, Medical University in Taiwan. They've run several awards, and if uh, China doesn't or the United States, if somebody doesn't mess with Taiwan, maybe we'll still have them in the future. I don't know. Geopolitics, you know, you never know what's going. On. But they're really great units, they're very low EMFs. We measure them, we got all the fancy things. They just have some magnetic energy, like you know sitting next to your uh, refrigerator or your juicer or whatever, or when we used to juice. But they're great units, twelve hundred and ninety five dollars delivered twelve ninety five in the lower forty eight. For those of you in Petaluma, that does not include Alaska or Hawaii, and we ship them all over the world. Uh, We've shipped uh, one to Italy a couple of weeks ago, and it comes with the proper plug, because as you know, we in the United States, we have the right plug. Everybody else has the wrong plug. I'm just kidding. Everybody has a different plug, and so we'll get you the right plug. Just email me. That's the only way to get the price. Patrick. One radio networkcom one of the biggest sales of the years and one of my favorite uh, things that I take every day I don't do a lot of supplementation just food but pine pollen is from trees it's 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 pollen and they and they and well it's on sale right now promo code restore 20 20% off here's a little bit on pine pollen uh, check it out recently we asked Daniel Vitalis if taking pine pollen would dampen the body's own testosterone-building mechanism.
3: Yeah, some research has been done to see if pine pollen would have that kind of effect because we see that with pharmaceutical testosterone supplementation. But what they found was you'd have to take the equivalent of about two bottles per day of our pine pollen extract to create that kind of an effect. So it's really safe for people at any age. And we found it to be really safe for both men and women. Today, a lot of women are also looking at testosterone replacement therapy. And I think before anybody looks to the pharmaceutical industry, for anti-aging therapies, for anabolic therapies. They should probably look to Nature First, and they should probably look to Sir Thrival's pine pollen products. And not just our pine pollen gold extract, but also our pine pollen pure potency, which contains ulithro root and also stinging nettle root, which helps to free testosterone that's already in the body, but has been bound up. It helps to free that in the blood. That's my favorite, the four Ps, really.
0: Yeah, that's the one I get, and it's on sale right now. Restore 20. Restore20 is the promo code for 20% off biggest sale of the year on pine pollen. I've been taking this little guy for maybe 12, 13 years every day. Not that whatever I do is smart because I'm crazy. I don't know what I'm doing, but you know, check it out. Last time I checked my testosterone, I did for fun a couple of years ago. It was like eight sixty, eight seventy, or 900, something like that. So, you know, I'm going to still have babies someday. And I'm, you know, I've clocked around 76 whatever uh, yeah you know, you know what I mean okay go on it's on sale right now check it out you'll you'll like it whoops mm. broadcasting from the beautiful hill country in Texas this is one RadioNetwork.com We're having fun talking with a very interesting fellow, Dr. Robert Sivis. He is an MD and a PhD. What's your PhD in?
1: My PhD is actually in liver metabolism, liver transplantation. So uh, I worked with, uh, at a time where sugar was supposed to be the cure for all liver ailments and uh, was at the forefront of um, beginning to discover that it's actually a problem rather than an issue. So... We fed livers that were ill sugar, thinking it would improve them, but it made them worse. Made them worse. And we had to have that aha moment to realize all the stuff we believed in was incorrect. And it's, it's so difficult for scientists who truly believe in something to realize that they're wrong and then to figure it out. So yeah, it's sir. taken us yeah. a long time to, to change that. But yeah, that's my PhD. It was in liver transplantation, liver glucose biology. And we could actually see, the beautiful thing is I could actually create diabetes in the liver. I could create the diabetic vascular injury within a few hours in the liver by infusing sugar into the liver and looking at those blood vessels under the microscope.
0: Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the idea that, so if we don't have carbs and we don't have sugar, pretty much we got to eat meat, right? It's what we eat meat and fat, butter and, 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 and things like that. So as I mentioned, I've been doing this for a while But every now and then I get a craving for a carb, just real craving. So I just have some white rice and butter. Now that craving, I'd like to ask you because I think you understand this: is that just my body really wanting it, or it's still just a mental addiction that all I got to do is just not go there?
1: Yeah, it's got nothing to do with your body. Okay. Your body doesn't crave it or doesn't need it. It's a mental thing. It all happens above the eyebrows, (laughs) and you know every now and then, so if you look at that craving uh-huh. um, if you step back from it and you say why why do i need this right now and the answer is almost always i'm stressed i'm bored i'm depressed i'm anxious i'm angry i'm sad <laughs> i'm having fun for pleasure it's right. always it always correlates
0: one of those as things part
1: right of emotional restitution yeah i call all of those those words uh emotional tension and the craving is all about unrecognized, a little bit of unrecognized emotional tension that you need relief from. You need a surrogate So the
0: from. craving is not my body, saying, Patrick, have some rice. It is simply an image, a mind thing, and I understand the mind are really one of my specialties. It's just an, an old image that flashes in, a state of consciousness, and I, I think about how it feels when you eat a carb, and that's the addiction. All I got to do is just pay. don't pay attention to it.
1: Right. And I think, you know, in, in your case, it may be more of an abusive relationship or even a valuable relationship. In a 300-pounder-like self, hmm. I know that, that that's a feeling, and I still get them, yeah. that I've got to combat by not having access to that rice. <laughs> because if I, The problem is that, you know, one handful of rice, once one serving of rice, no big deal. It causes no harm. Nothing. But then again, if you're an alcoholic, one sip of beer isn't going to make you drunk. But In addiction it's the threshold is the word permission once you grant yourself permission you've combated a whole bunch of incredibly powerful defenses that defend against the harm of the drug and when you cross that threshold in other words addicts are extremely good Hmm. at distorting the reality of harm to give themselves permission to have their drug can you imagine rolling up your sleeve putting a tourniquet on your arm heating up a powder in a liquid and injecting heroin. Wow. There's no difference between the heroin addict distorting the reality of that ridiculousness to give themselves the high versus the average person who goes over to the fridge and and piles up a whole pile of ice cream and eats it. Yeah. Um, Because it's about the process. Everybody, every obese person, every type 2 diabetic knows that ice cream is probably not a good idea. So we create this distortion of reality that I know it's not a good idea, but right now for this very valid reason, it's appropriate. Wow. There's never a valid reason for anyone to shoot up with heroin or for an alcoholic to have a drink. And there's never a valid reason for a type one, di- type 2 diabetic or an obese person to eat sugar. Yeah. And yet we create circumstances that validate in a distorted way our, our requirement for that.
0: When did the whole sugar thing start and carb thing In our culture, as a species, do we know? I mean, when people really started growing wheat and rice and stuff like that.
1: Well, I I think that the the initial strategy way back I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of years ago, long time ago. uh, A long time ago, uh, I mean, pre Egyptian culture. Hmm. The Egyptians were the most successful. In fact, if you look at some of the foreign language use, the 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 Greeks, for example, I believe it's the Greeks called the Egyptians bread lovers. They, because uh, 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 sarcophagia, which is because they were grain consumers. Now, they did that um, so that they could reliably store food through drought. And so, our migration away from animals toward a farming culture and potentially a herding culture was really about survival. And we human beings, really what defines us as humans, our bodies are pretty pathetic relative to the animal species, our brains. Our brains define that. And our brains evolved because of our consumption of marine fat. Marine so we fat. we evolved marine. along shorelines. Wow. And it's smart, wow. you know, shorelines, you've got access to fish, you've got access to seafood, you've got access to kelp and that kind of thing. You've got access to animals that come down to drink water at the shoreline. And if you live on a shoreline, you usually got good water at a lake, lake shoreline, water for agriculture so we started developing control over plants and control over animals and that's what defines us as humans we became farmers and ranchers and we built up a reliable source storage of products well most plants don't store very well but grains do Hmm. and we became a grain-based culture and yet our ability to store grains was far faster than our genetic transformation to tolerate those grains. For eons, we moved away from being vegetarian animals to be more carnivorous, which allowed our brains to grow. Hmm. Um, there's also another principle behind being more carnivorous is that if you think about a vegetarian animal, cows, ha- vegetable material, plants, have very, very poor nutrient quality. So therefore you have to spend a lot of time eating a huge amount of plants to be able to get adequate nutrition. So cows will eat, graze for 12, 16 hours a day. Yeah. Well, that doesn't give them a lot of time to watch Netflix movies. (laughs) So what we human beings did is we started eating much, much more nutrient-dense animals, which gave us a massive bang for buck in a very short period of time so that we could do other things.
0: Does
1: that make sense? Yes, sir.
0: So we'd be productive and be strong. I'm finding that with this, just eating steak and and meat, I mean steak and butter and eggs. Uh, I'm writing screenplays as my second job, and I get a lot more done. I have more clarity. I can eat at night and stay up for you know six, seven, eight, ten midnight working. If I eat pasta, you know at seven o'clock. I'm done. Boop. An right. hour, an right. hour later, right? I'm just you know best I can do is watch a movie. You know, if I'm lucky, and don't fall asleep.
1: Wow. Well, the, the interesting right, the, and the interesting about a, a carbohydrate load is. Sugar is very hydroscopic. It sucks up water. So if you eat that big carbohydrate, sugar sucks up water. Think about it. If you take sugar, you can dissolve it in tea. You can't dissolve fat in tea. It's float, you know, it's separate. So what happens when we eat sugar, every molecule of sugar has six carbons. Each one requires attachment to one molecule of water. So every molecule of sugar requires six molecules of water. So you eat that that goes around your blood system. It goes to your brain and your brain lives in a closed box. <clears throat> so, even a small amount of swelling of your brain causes basically like a little minor concussion, is the lay word of looking for it. So, after we've had a big carbohydrate meal, you go out for lunch. The least, ty- the, the least productive workforce have- is in the hour or two after lunch because they're all kind of dealing with a minor concussion. <laughs> you go out for lunch and you have uh, a steak or you eat some chicken. Um, it, you just, as you said, you're productive. You're wired, you're productive, or what you find is that you've eaten enough in a short period of time. My steak last night will see me through till dinner tonight. I've stored that. My insulin level is low. I'm not able to use my fat stores. I don't need to eat because I've got that food inside of me. So now I have time to be productive without spending time in the kitchen or grazing. So I'm much more productive on a carnivore-based diet or really a ketogenic-based diet.
0: Okay, we'll talk about the difference. But this, for me, this is so fun because I am not hungry anymore. I'm just not hungry and I just don't eat until I get hungry again. And so I don't care what time it is. And when I get hungry, then I eat. I mean, it's pretty Correct. fun, right? And rather than saying I have to have lunch and breakfast and dinner. Do you just eat once a day now?
1: I, you know, I plan to eat twice a day. Hmm. But whether I eat twice a day or once a day Doesn't really matter. depends on how busy I am. Uh-huh. If I'm really busy, I've got, there's plenty stored. Okay, I'm not going to die of anorexia if I skip that meal. <laughs> no. and, and even if you're fairly skinny, you've got enough stores in your fat cells yes. to survive to the next meal. That's the beauty about being human. Mm. So when, you're, when your insulin levels are low and your glucagon levels are high and you're living on fat, fat suppresses appetite. And then every now and then you feel hungry. But, and that hunger says, okay, I need to eat. But you know what? Here's an interesting concept, Patrick. For the most part, when people say they're hungry, It has nothing to do with nutrition. In the old days, when you were younger and we lived on the plains of Africa and we said, I'm hungry, it meant we had to grab our bow and arrow, grab our digging stick and go and find food. Our bodies needed food. In the modern era, certainly in the last 40 or 50 years, the majority of people spend their entire existence within 50 yards of an abundance of food. Hunger no longer equates with nutritional deficit. Wow. Hunger has become the same as I need a cigarette. When someone says, Oh, I need a cigarette. It it doesn't mean that they're not breathing very well. It means that they've got some emotional tension. They need relief. Nicotine gives them that relief. When an obese person, oh, I'm hungry. They're not saying my selenium levels are low. What they're saying is I'm a little stressed. I'm a little bored. I'm a little anxious. I need relief. I need to eat something to give me that emotional relief. That's why a snack is always an emotional event, because it gives us that little mind cleansing moment. But it's an instant gratification mechanism that, when accumulated, causes harm in the back end. So you're suggesting
0: that in modern times, we're around breakfast time or lunch time, that subconsciously and consciously we think it's just time to eat. And that's pretty much what people think about hungry.
1: Correct. And, you know, uh, well, you've got a dog. How often do you feed your dog? Once a day. Once a day. Once a, most people feed it is once or twice a day. So what happens if the dog gets, gets hungry at lunchtime? It doesn't get hungry at lunchtime because it's not part of
0: <laughs> the right. My dog doesn't, doesn't say, sense? Patrick, it's lunchtime. And you know what's interesting about my dog, and she's right here, she'll go, she'll skip meals all the time and sometimes two days in a row.
1: Seriously, just right, no, food. She's no food. She's eating nutritionally, yeah. not eating emotionally. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you've got that little yappy dog that you're feeding a little snack for you, a little snack for me, that dog's entire life has become engaged from an emotion management perspective to receiving food or receiving little treats. You know, if your dog gets hungry in the middle of the day, it can chase the mailman. <laughs> um, but but well, it doesn't Well let's talk about meat.
0: I give perfect. her organic yes. grass-fed meat maybe every now and then an egg in there or something like that extra fat sometimes I put in there her her so she eats good, well but that's all she eats. So right. so do we know for sure? I guess I mean there's too many people just doing carnivore and you are and that having a steak with fat is and maybe butter it's we're good it's got everything we need is that true?
1: Well, no, it's not true. And I think this is a very important point, is that at first, going very narrow on what you're eating is we usually go carnivore. The primary purpose for most people going carnivore is to correct a problem, diabetes or obesity or some sort of problem that came out of eating sugar. So it's not like we're already very healthy and we want to be a little healthier. Yes. Most people are eating it for a purpose. So we're willing to make sacrifices to our nutrition to drop weight or to correct insulin resistance. So the first goal of a carnivore diet or a ketogenic diet has a therapeutic role where we accept certain other deficiencies because we need to get rid of very quickly our excess weight or our diabetes. Gotcha. So... Correction of disease, the therapeutic application of a carnivore diet is very useful for anywhere from six months to two years. Huh. However, and we usually have adequate stores that we can survive certain micronutrient deficiencies with that as a, as, a, as a as an objective. And the carnivore diet is the most effective diet, anti-inflammatory diet. So, if you've got Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis irritable bowel syndrome, acid reflux, it goes away very quickly. If you've got obesity, if you've got diabetes, the carnivore is the most radical but the most effective way to do it, difficult to to do and miserable at first. However, my veteran carnivores need to look at two separate things. Number one, the carnivore diet provides macronutrients, protein and fat in abundance, the calories in abundance. What a narrow carnivore diet may do is leave you eventually with nutrient deficiency. So one of the things I work with my patients, okay, eat as much steak as you want to, I don't care, but let's also focus on a range of micronutrients. So you're getting your minerals, your vitamins, your trace elements, as you said earlier on, from your food, where it's supposed to come from. So I'm not gonna tell people to eat something they don't wanna eat, but in the carnivore space, the micronutrient options you have, eggs, are one of, that's my vitamin. Mm-hmm. So eggs are one of the healthiest things you can eat, wow. despite what conventional doctors say because of the cholesterol. The only two things that are missing in eggs, because an egg becomes a chicken, but we don't eat the shell typically. So calcium is deficient mm-hmm. and vitamin C is deficient. Mm-hmm. So if you then are comfortable using dairy, now dairy may slow down loss, but dairy is has everything in it to grow a baby, to grow a a baby cow. So dairy has all the calcium that you need. So dairy and and eggs are a wonderful condiment to add to your food as your vitamin. Cool. The other place we get a huge range of of metabolically healthy vitamins and minerals is liver. So some people hate eating organs, some people don't mind eating organs, but liver and kidneys are the organs that some people will eat as their vitamin store. The other place we can get it is from small fish and seafood. So, your sardines, your oysters, your mussels, your clams, your shrimp, if you eat the whole animal, those small those small fish, they have huge, broad range of everything. Excellent. And again, you can set yourself up. Hmm. If you don't like fish, but you eat eggs, that's fine. Mm-hmm. You don't have to eat them all. Yeah. But the, the more broad your carnivore diet is, the better. So, um, having that that broader carnivore diet where you focus on your micronutrient consumption. And, you know, when I say eat sardines, yeah, you may eat sardines for a meal, but it may be I'm eating my steak, but I'm going to have one or two oysters with my steak sure. and smoked sure. oysters, to fine, or one or two sardines with it. Or I'm going to make myself some hamburger. I don't like liver, but I'm going to take a chicken liver. I'm going to make I'm going a bite, 12 pounds of, of hamburger and I'm going to make my own burgers and I'm going to throw some salt and some some uh, liver in there and camouflage it. So there are ways to do this. Even if you don't like liver, you can get it in, without um, right uh, without Excellent. Uh, the so,
0: taste. so, so, the idea with the eggs and and then the uh, the small fish and things that'll that'll round out and maybe dairy. Like I'm doing raw right. goat's Keys, milk. Kind of raw thing. goat's Fine. milk. Yeah, does goats that get
1: it? Absolutely perfect. Cool. Absolutely perfect. Yeah, we go. In it. fact, that's one of the few substitutes that works fairly well instead of breast milk for babies. Is that this right? This whole formula crisis. Uh, raw goat's milk is actually a, was was one of those few things that for a while cow's milk doesn't work so good for human babies the closest we can come is goat's milk um, and at least during that crisis if you could access it that was a reasonable surrogate if we
0: can get raw butter and use that as the extra fat is that the same as getting maybe just some extra fat at the farmer's market and cooking that up um, we have access to that here or does the butter do it, if you just want to do the butter yeah. and a little bit of butter, fat on the, on the, on the, on the ribeye?
1: Butter, ghee, tallow, lard are excellent. But here's the key thing. Early on, when you're trying to get into ketosis, when you're trying to suppress appetite, adding a decent amount of fat to your food and going very high in fat is ideal. Uh, people add butter to their coffee or whatever it may sure. be. However, over time, you really only want to eat the fat that comes with the food. With the so, if you eating a ribeye steak, it's fine to grill a ribeye steak and a little bit of butter, but don't go and add a ton of it to it. If you're going to eat a filet, add some butter, add some cheese, add some bacon, add a piece of egg to it. So, you really want to fortify with fat. You don't want to load up with fat. Um, but you always want to have fat with your food.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The only the only interesting thing with my carnivore veterans, and this is what we seen with people that are two, five years out on a carnivore diet, they are so fat adapted. They are so are good at using fat in their diet, they don't necessarily produce insulin. So in those folks, way down the road, we have to find triggers for insulin. And that's, how, that's time for a whole different discussion. So you asked me about the carnivore diet. Wow. It isn't a, it isn't a thing, it's an evolving entity. And that's where you wanna align yourself with a healthcare provider who understands what you're doing so they can measure where you are and work to the next level. So Doesn't that's what you
0: do with your your people, and you're very busy. We had to do this on a weekend because you work all day.' Uh, sick five days a week, and you're talking right. with people all over the world, and you c- kind of consult with them and work with them to, to to get everything that they need. so so, there's a time when um, w- would you feel though, if you needed to adapt with some different ways to get the insulin up? Would I feel that as Absolutely okay, yes,
1: and and that's the you know so at, we use blood work to do, to evolve this. So I'll do blood work on someone to begin with. They're profoundly insulin resistant. We slowly get them toward. We don't start with the, the, the carnivore diet. We slowly evolve toward it. If they choose to, they can be ketogenic as well if they want to. Uh, results are slow but as good. Um, and and then we we follow the insulin resistance till it becomes insulin sensitive. But then over time, they may become insulin suppressed. Where they're no longer releasing insulin and now you're starting to feel crappy your blood sugars are going up mm. you may not you may actually gain a few pounds in weight um, and that is because your body's taking excess protein turning it to sugar that's where sugar comes from in a carnivore diet um, that's why you don't need to eat sugar because your body will use a little bit of that protein but if you're so busy using fat you don't use that sugar then you turn it into fat and it kind of goes off a little bit so we, we bring that back. Now we, we trigger insulin, and you can then use a little bit of that sugar to, together with your ketones. You want to be in about a 70-30 ratio of ketones to sugar in terms of what your body uses for fuel and as a substrate. But I think the other key thing is we've got to, the body does not work this way. Hmm. Most people, most nutritionists think in terms of this we use for fuel, this we use for tissue building. The body doesn't work that way. It's all the same.